starting started recording uh hello there how are you good to see you uh good to see you too so uh today we have uh, dr ahmed al jalad and uh, i'll let you introduce your, yourself and then we'll pick it up from there okay thanks it's uh, it's great to be with you thank you uh, so Ahmed Jalad, so I'm a, uh, a professor at Ohio State University, at the Ohio State University, uh, where I am busy with uh, really the linguistic history of Arabic and adjacent languages. Uh, so dealing with also very closely related Semitic languages and languages that Arabic has been in contact with in the past, like Aramaic, for example, and languages Arabic developed into um, over time. Uh, and so, uh, so that in itself is not very remarkable. A lot of people are interested in the history of Arabic, but the approach that I've decided to take is to uh, base the writing of Arabic's history uh, on uh, documentary sources. That is, yeah. sources that we can be sure of in terms of authenticity and chronology. So things, utilizing things like epigraphy and archeology, span studying things like papyri, right? to help us uh, talk about the development of Arabic um, in an evidence-based way. Mm -hmm. yes. And so that is the, the, the big project uh, that I'm working on uh, right now from the earliest attestations of Arabic until uh, really um, how it's thought of in modern times. Uh, so, and uh, yeah, so that is the, uh, the basic story. You, you can put a link to my academia.edu page where, uh, people listening in it who are interested can, can find uh, things to download. Um, and uh, just now, actually, just today, uh, my, uh, uh, a recent book, my, rec my most recent book um, was released. It's called The uh, Damascus Psalm Fragments, Middle Arabic and the Legacy of Old Hijazi. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I just, I think I just uh, saw that. Uh, yeah, so yeah. Tell, us, uh, tell us more about that. Well, it's, a, it's, it's sort of an interesting book because it deals with the period in history that um, in the popular imagination, uh, people think, uh, in the popular imagination, it is a period that is um, uh, uh, relatively, well, relatively well known from historical sources. It is um, in the full light of history, you could say. And so in, and that period is the century or so before the rise of Islam. The, uh, uh, the emergence of Islam, the Arab conquests, and ending about a century and a half after, to two centuries after uh, uh, the uh, rise of Islam. And I look at the Arabic language in this period, and most people, uh, I would say most approaches to this in the past, have depended upon uh, sources that actually come quite late, um, uh, either in terms of their origin or transmission. So. Uh, in the, the, the usual way of talking about this period in, in the past is to consult things like the works of the Arabic grammarians, people like Sibawe, right? Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and they record a, a, a lot of linguistic variation. They record a lot about Arabic and they, the, the material they record ends up forming the, uh, the corpus, the pool, out of, uh, uh, that um, uh, describes what is allowable for Arabic and ultimately gives rise to uh, what, I like to, what, what I've been calling uh, since a few hours ago, uh, kitabis, which is the, um, uh, the language you learn in, 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 in elementary school, right? The fusha, but the, 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 the fusha, the standard Arabic of our books, right? 
And so we learned that, and that, and that, that doesn't come directly from what these grammarians have, have, have gathered, but it emerges from that. Now, we tend to, we, 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 if you open up, for example, an encyclopedia article on Old Arabic and Old Arabic here, meaning pre-Islamic Arabic, okay. most of the references in the older encyclopedia articles go back to the work that people like Sibawe have done, right? But then you can ask yourself, is Sibawe pre-Islamic? Of course not, right? Of course yeah. he's not pre-Islamic. So how is it that Sibawe and, and his uh, cohort uh, give us information about pre-Islamic Arabic when they themselves are not pre-Islamic and they're documenting Arabic from their time period. And in addition to that, they are documenting a very specific kind of Arabic, right? They're not going to uh, uh, everyone who speaks uh, a language that we would call Arabic and asking them for information about their dialect. They're not looking at written sources. They are speaking to man turtada arabiyatuhu. So they have in their mind already an idea of what Arabic should be, at least minimally speaking. Yeah. And when you meet that criteria, you get to be a you get you, you get to become a resource, a marja. Hmm? You can go and ask this person uh, uh, their opinion about Arabic, and that's fine. But we have but it, but uh, when we take away all of the uh, the judgment and the prescriptiveness of linguistic history, what we are left with is a very small slice of linguistic history that the grammarians give us. They tell us that tribesmen belonging to these tribes or, 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 or from this region will say a certain thing, right? But for example, we have, uh, uh, we have very little information how uh, the farmer, how a, how a farmer from, uh, uh, from Northern Jordan would have spoken in the seventh century or the eighth century, for example. So that's one thing. The second thing that we have is the uh, pre-Islamic poems, like the Mu'allaqat, correct? Yep. And this is, of course, in a very, uh, uh, very these are pre-Islamic. I do believe that in large part, and we can't say every single line, but in large part, the, the, the basic content, the core content of this material is pre-Islamic. But it is transmitted. And transmission comes with, with, with editing. That is, there's no controversy to that. And you could just look at all the different recensions there are for the poems, right? There's no single mu'allaqa of, uh, uh, of Antara, for example. There are many different recensions, right? So they do differ within that, uh, in that way. But in addition to that, they, um, they reflect a very different register. They're, they are in a, a, an artistic register, a register of performance, right? They don't necessarily, or we shouldn't assume that they are identical to the speech of everyday people. And they also represent a, 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 a specific cultural production that not the totality of Arabic speakers would have participated in. So in a way, in a way, when we start from this point of view, we get a very narrow definition of Arabic linguistically and culturally. And it is almost alienating in some way to many Arabic speakers today because the vast majority of Arabic speakers don't speak a language that looks anything like this material. And they come from cultures that are quite remote um, from the kind of culture that's being described in some of this early literature, right? But then that was all that we had. This was what was thought. This is what we had to see into Arabic's past. Uh, there is another approach, I thought, I, I, and, I, uh, and, and this is the approach that I've, uh, in general, have been advocating. And, uh, 
and in this particular book um, I'm focusing on for the time period that I've just mentioned. And it's to look at um, documents that exist outside or exist free from the prescriptive uh, specter of, or, the, or well, from the prescriptive norms of, uh, how do we say, uh, from the grammarians Arabic, right? From the way you're supposed to write, right? Uh, I saw a video the other day where, you know, someone writes in the vernacular, it, it was on the, it was a modern Lebanese uh, uh, joke, I think, but somebody's writing in the vernacular and saying, right? So we want to avoid that. We want to yeah. find texts that, that don't come from an atmosphere, from an environment, where there's someone saying, right? Uh, so where yeah. do we look? How do we find these? Where do we find these texts? There's one... Uh, so the book studies one unique, so far unique, and, 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 and fascinating document. It is a uh, translation of Psalm 77 mm -hmm, from Koine Greek. Mm -hmm, yeah. from, from the Hebrew Bible, Koine Greek, into Arabic. But the translator, the translator did not use the Arabic script when he was doing this the translator decided to use the Greek script to write Arabic. Okay. Now that in itself is very interesting. Uh, the, uh, just a joke on the side. If this guy yeah. was writing today, uh, it would have become a political kind of polemic there, you know. Well, and you know, it's interesting because we might consider that there was a, um, a that, that, that choosing to write in Greek like this might have been a matter of identity, might have had a political dimension as, as well. well. It ha yeah, right? it might have, but we don't need to assume that. We don't need to. We, that, that's not our only interpretation. Of course, in, uh, in, and we'll discuss that. But it's true. And today, in fact, it's also it's funny because if you do it today in a certain context, it has a political force. If you do it on your text message. If you do it on Facebook, it has no political meaning whatsoever. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. so it is, it's completely the environment. But think about this. Imagine if, imagine if, and so this is sort of what we're dealing with. Imagine if you're, you're in the year 3000 and you want to know how people in the year 2020 or whatever year it is, uh, speak 2000, I think we could probably start 2010 or so, but anyway, speak Arabic. Hmm? Yeah. And all you had were newspapers. You would have the completely wrong idea. And let's say you didn't just have newspapers. You had the, uh, the, the cartoons, like we said. The, <laughs> Space Tune. And, uh, and, and the, what do you call them? The, the Mexican uh, soap uh, opera. Yes. We would have the completely wrong idea of how people spoke day to day. Yeah. Have the idea that everyone from, uh, uh, you know, the Atlantic to the uh, 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 to Oman, were speaking basically the same language. Fushaw, and, and it was all basic and very and basically saying that would be our idea of Arabic if we relied on that kind of source and if we use textbooks and and so on, right? So yeah. that's how to think of when we look back to the early Islamic period and we only read the grammarians, grammarians, and we only look at. Um, documents that have been preserved and edited like the poetry. Even the poetry gives you a lot of exceptions, but you can see other literary works as well. 
but uh, we, we, we get that very narrow view. Now, if we really wanted to know about how people spoke Arabic today from the year 3000, we wouldn't want to look at newspapers. We wouldn't want to look at, um, how do you say it? Um, we wouldn't want to look at newspapers. We wouldn't want to look at, 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 at the translations of Mexican soap operas. We would want to look at people's text messages and we would want to look at people's um, uh, Facebook uh, conversations when they're using, especially when they're using the, um, the, the, the Roman or English alphabet. Yeah. That will give you the best idea into and a, a, a best idea about what people were actually speaking in their day to day life, right? Yeah, come so, to say, yeah. So this, I mean, if if this person was writing in in Greek uh, script, yeah. then yeah. Yeah, there there might have not been a because everyone, absolutely everyone nowadays, just what everyone. The majority of people mm. write in Latin script. I mean, yes. WhatsApp is much easier. It's just because faster. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And I'm, and you know, it depends. Sometimes you don't even have the Arabic keyboard on your uh, uh, on your um, on your phone. So so the idea here is here might be a scribe who was a speaker of Arabic. Okay. Here's a speaker of Arabic, but perhaps now there are two interpretations. Perhaps this scribe is not trained in writing Arabic because remember, writing a language is much more than simply picking up a pen and producing the letters. Maybe the scribe, maybe he could read it, but he wasn't, he wasn't trained in the way to write uh, in a nice calligraphic style Arabic, but he wasn't Greek. Yeah. Right? So that's, and that might've motivated him to use this, this Greek method, right? It certainly isn't his invention as we, if, if you read the book, you'll see that this was too systematic, too established. It seems that there was a community doing this. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but there was a, a minority community deciding to do it this way. So, um, but anyway, the, this scribe, when he produces this translation, he produces the translation in a language that is basically a sort of translation register of the vernacular. So the way he speaks, but he's also making sure to follow, it's a very literal translation. So it follows the word order of the Greek. It translates the Greek literally. So it sounds weird when you read the sentences in Arabic because the scribe is using this translation to teach someone or, or, or to help someone read the Greek. So it matches the Greek sentence order, right? Yeah. But, but the words, the grammatical constructions, the phonology, the pronunciation, it's all, um, it's all Arabic, right? So if you, uh, if you share the screen with me now, I can... Uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, yeah. fascinating. I can show you the document. Uh, advanced... Uh, all participants. Here you go. You got it. All right. Yep. Um, hold on. I need my glasses for this. Okay. Huh. Um, Could it? Sure. Is it? And and this would be a question for later about the, mm. the grammatical structure or the structure of sentences in Arabic. So I'll I'll ask you about this uh, later. Yes. Yes. Maybe maybe Absolutely. it evolves the structure, the order of the words, etc. But yeah. Uh, Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you see the screen, right? Yeah, yes, I do. Yes, so this here is um, a photograph of the doctor. The original document is, uh, has disappeared. It was discovered in the early 20th century uh, in Qubat uh, al-Khazni. Uh, this is sort of a Geniza, sort of a, a depository for unused books that was in the uh, Umayyad Mosque of Damascus. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so this was there amongst uh, many, many other uh, texts. 
from in the, it's a polyglot depositories. You had Armenian, you had you had you had you had Greek, you had Aramaic texts, you had Arabic, everything you could imagine. And there were texts that were Christian as as well as uh, as well as Muslim. Um, and so the Germans uh, were examining this, and the Germans got the permission to from the Ottoman uh, uh, sublime port, the Ottoman uh, state, to study the uh, how do you say it, the uh, Christian documents, the non-Muslim documents, I should say, the non-Muslim documents. This was one of them. And when you just look at this text immediately, okay, this, is, uh, this text is on the cover of the book and it's mirrored on purpose because it's, uh, so it's the, the mirroring is meant to t tell you that it's not normal Greek. Huh? So it's, uh, it's, it's, you look at this and it looks just like a Greek text, right? Yeah, it does. Greek, there's not, what you would basically say though is that there's no Arabic here. This is just a Greek text. Hmm? Yeah. Well, that's true on, for the left side, for the left column, it's Septuagint Greek, it's fine, right? It's the Greek uh, 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 translation of the Hebrew Bible. But the right text, hmm? yeah. right column is in fact, uh, how do you say it, Arabic. So um, we can see here, I can, oh, oh, let, me, let, me, let me go to annotate, where are we here? Uh, annotate, uh, draw, uh, yes, okay. So there are two, let's read two words here that you'll be able to recognize. Um, yeah. Here is one word, right? El-Rab, uh, El exactly, El-Rab. Yeah. So the Arabic word, the Lord, right? El-Rab. And uh, the, uh, uh, we can see that, well, uh, the Greek alphabet lets us see in detail the uh, um, uh, phonetic pronunciation of the word. You can see that the definite article is pronounced A instead of A, L. Uh, rub doesn't uh, have a shadda at the end, no germination, just rub. But in addition to that, there's something that's missing. This is a very important point because you cannot see this when you write in the Arabic script. There's no Arab. Yeah. You see? There's no Arab. So if we wrote this in the Arabic script, excuse my handwriting because I'm writing on a screen, and it would look something like this, and it was in a document from, now this document probably dates 8th or 9th century, late 8th, 9th century uh, CE, AD, right? So this is very early, right? This is within two centuries after the conquest. Yeah. If you saw a text written like that in the, uh, in the Arabic script from this period, you would immediately say, Arabu. True. Right? Arabu, taban, Arabu. Huh? Yeah. And it's just, the, yeah, and it doesn't have tashkil, but everyone knows it's arab. Yeah, of course. But here you see that, well, there is no u at the end. It's just al-rab. And if you see the word before it, it's hard to see the end of it, um, but, it but you can make it out. Um, it says, this is sigma, eta, uh, epsilon, mu. So sem, and then you have an iota here, and then a gamma. The gamma is used to represent the ayn here. Hmm. So, semer. Semer al rab. So, the Lord heard. Hmm? The Lord yeah. heard. al rab. Not semia. There's no rabbu. Right? It's no semia al rab. Al rabbu. It's not that. It's semer al rab. And that's it. Now, you cannot see this when you write in the Arabic script. So in many ways, when we look at these early documents, and this has been the basic methodology, when we look at these early documents, what do we do? We see a word like, okay, ha. Huh. All right, maybe even has dots. Let's put some dots on it. 
And it's clear that in the context that this is supposed to be um, the plural of book, the plural of kitab. Hmm? And when we come across this word in the document from this period in the Arabic script, we immediately say kutubun. Hmm? Kutubun. Well, I mean, this is what else would it be? Huh? But when we look at documents like this, we might start doubting that impulse and using classical Arabic tashkil to fill in the gaps in these early documents. Because a document like this could say, listen, a, a text from the ninth century, from the eighth century, could, it could be kutubun, but it could as easily be ketub. And we would have no idea where it, because we can't, the, the text itself doesn't tell us anything, that this is what the text tells us. Everything else we've supplied. We've supplied the un. We've supplied the u and u. They're not there. Okay. And we've supplied them simply because we've assumed that they were, that, well, that was just universal. There was no other choice. That's just how it was said. But the document like this shows us that, in fact, there is a lot of variation. And, in fact, in this time period, we don't need to assume Arab is being used. And we could very easily have a form like Ketub or Kutub, or whoever, who knows what the vowels are, right? Yeah. And that right there is, um, is, 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 I think, a very basic observation, but it's also a revolutionary one. Why is it revolutionary? Because it sets, it, it sort of runs um, head into this narrative that uh, in the beginning, this is the again we go back to kind of a uh, to our, our um, uh, what, what what is accepted in public imagination. If we were to say that the mythology of uh, of Arabic, it would go like this: In the beginning, huh, there was Fusqa. There was the pure Arabic of the poems and of high literature and of and the public discourse, Shifab and so on, right? That was there in the beginning. And then as the non-Arabs began to learn this language, as this language spread, the non-Arabs started to learn it, they uh, lacked the ability somehow to uh, reproduce its grammatical forms correctly. And the language was corrupted. And that corruption, the failure of the conquered people to speak this pure Arabic is what produced, is what produced, um, the modern vernaculars. And so the modern vernaculars are, con are conceptualized as um, the product of corruption. Of, uh, sometimes you might hear people say laziness. Of, uh, of, or um, even ignorance. You don't really know yes, the language. Of ignorance, of ignorance. So laziness, ignorance, corruption, and ultimately conquest. Yeah. And when we look at an early document, and we see it even written right here in, um, uh, in uh, uh, even in a, in a script outside of not even using the Arabic script. So we can't even imagine that this is an attempt to imitate high Arabic writing. You know what I mean? There's no attempt at imitation here. This is just simply a vernacular. We see that the uh, linguistic features that we have called, that, that not we, but that this mythology, has labeled corruption, you know, facade, this, these features are there from the beginning. Yeah. They are there at the same time that Fusha is being um, compiled, as we can say, right? 
And in fact, in fact, when we look at this document, what makes it particularly interesting is that if we push it back even further, we see that these kinds of linguistic features and that this kind of language did not emerge in the Islamic period, but it has its origins in the pre-Islamic period as well. So when we discuss a document like this in light of pre-Islamic Arabic, as we know from not poetry and not from Siboe, who was not a witness to the pre-Islamic period, but rather from inscriptions. Hmm? Yeah. We see, indeed, there are differences, of course. There's always going to be differences when you factor in the dimension of time. But the, um, how do you say it, uh, the, uh, the things that we would call facade, right, like the loss of Arab, right, the loss of Arab, the absence of Arab, what we would call corruption, it's there before the rise of Islam. Yeah. Not only is it there before the rise of Islam, it's there both in city dialects, like the dialect of Petra, which we can see, but it's also there in the dialects of the nomad, the Bedouin. So we see the absence of this feature all over the place. So the interpretation that things like the loss of Arab are the product of poor second language acquisition by conquered people is demonstrably false. Demonstrably, right? We can prove that this, that the absence of Arab was there before there were even Arab conquests, right? So we have now almost two, it's sort of, you've got to think in terms of parallel timelines, where you have a timeline for vernacular Arabic, for living Arabic, and then next to that timeline, a completely different one for the language of writing. And these flow together. And what we have been doing, what we have been doing um, for so long is looking at the latest stages of the vernacular timeline and comparing them to the earlier stages of the written timeline. And these are separate timelines. And that's what produces this narrative. But when we look at the vernacular timeline, what we should be comparing it to is the timeline with the early stages, which are represented by a document like this, right? This lets you see back in time in terms of the vernacular, okay? So yeah. maybe we should read it a bit. Yeah, yeah sure, go ahead. All right. Let's so see. many questions. <laughs> Good, well, we'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to those. Yeah, yeah, things. take your time, but this is, this is fascinating. This is the tracing of the document, which is easier to see uh, yeah. um, than uh, easier to see than the photograph. So uh, we can begin here at the very top. Um, so the word is broken. It says sahra. Sahra is just a stone, of course. It's broken, but next to it, fasalat, fasalat. This is to flow. Fasalat in fasalat here. Fasalat. So we have this iman. Fasalat, and then maya. Maya is the modern word for water, right? Yeah. Of course, it's not in Fusfan, but it's here. And not only is it here, it is in pre-Islamic Arabic inscriptions that go back a thousand years before this document. So Maya, and then in pre-Islamic times with a T, Mayat even, is there as a dialectal word, not as a, as a living vernacular word for water, um, 
And when we look at modern Mayya today, Mayya, our point of reference should not be Fusha Ma. ma eh. Say, hey, you know, it's Mayya now, and look in Fusha, it's Ma. Fusha is sort of out of the question because that isn't part of the vernacular timeline. Yeah, you're comparing just two different kind of spe- uh, spheres and Absolutely. apples Absolutely. to bananas or something, yeah. Our vernacular timeline brings us here where we have Mayya. And then we can go back because we have this documentation. We can go back a thousand years before this document and find, for example, in the Safiyyadic inscriptions, which are old Arabic inscriptions that date to around the turn of the era, um, uh, where, we, uh, uh, where I do a lot of uh, field research collecting these, uh, and where you have forms like Mayyat. So, okay. so, so this is an ancient, of course, the Mayyat, Mayyat becomes Mayya, then Mayyi, right? That's the timeline. And Ma is just a parallel form that doesn't figure into the vernacular. Not, yeah. into, not, into the, not into this particular vernacular we're talking about. There are other vernaculars that have reflexes of ma, right? But that's not, uh, when, we're, when we're dealing, let's say, with a Levantine vernacular, that's sort of out of the question. Hmm? Yeah. And so, uh, just on the side, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you, for example, in, in the case of uh, mai, maybe this is why we use mai in Lebanon, versus mm-hmm. mayit, Oh, mayit. Uh, you know, uh, dead versus water. That's, I think. Yes, so, so uh, well, to begin with, uh, to begin with, it's important to know that languages don't care if they have one phonemic string, one yeah. string of phonemes that can mean multiple things. Okay. Think about English um, bear. Right? I mean, you can bear carry and bear and yeah, 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 yeah. It bear witness. I mean, there's so many different meanings of yeah. this one word, right? Um, so, and that doesn't bother anyone. And the same, the same, of course. Uh, and if you if you want to think about fusha, think about what ma means. Yeah. Ma means no and what. And it's context that tells you what the difference is, right? Okay. So basically, in this case, you don't have a problem with that. But yeah. in general, here it would be, uh, I would say, mayat. And if you, mayyat, uh, so the, vowel, the second vowel would be an a, ah, and then mayyit, where the second vowel okay. would be. That would be originally the case, right? Yeah. Originally the case. So here we have, فَسَيَلَتْ مَيِّهِ وَالْأَوْدِيَ فَاضَتْ لَعَلْ وَخُبْزْ يَقْدِرْ يُعْطِي أَوْ يُهَيِّ مَيْدِهِ لِشَعْبِ So the, it's understandable, the word order is a bit funny, like they put the object first, وَخُبْزْ يَقْدِرْ يُعْطِي this is matching the Greek. Yeah. But see this construction here, yiqdir yu'ati. It's a completely modern construction, right? Yeah, and so, it's a, it, it, well, we shouldn't say it's a modern construction. It's an ancient construction that survives in the modern vernacular, right? But when you think, when we think of literary Arabic today, you know, and I'm speaking again, I keep coming back to the popular idea here. Um, we think of something like yastati'u, and and if you don't say that, then it's not Arabic. Well, of course, Arabic, in, in, in Fusha, you could say Yaqdir as well. I mean, that's fine too. It's just not part of Kitabis. That is that very narrow kind of Fusha we learn in school. Yeah. Um, in any case, we have Yaqdir, Yu'ati, Wuyhayyimaydi, And then we have here, Lidhalik, Lidhalik. Now, in the modern vernacular, you wouldn't say Lidhalik. It depends on where you are. How would you say it in Lebanon? In the vernacular. Mishan hek. Mishan hek. Ashan hek. Mishan hek. Now, lidelik, here, we shouldn't think of it as 
um, an imitation of Kitabis? Absolutely not. What we can see is that this is a point where the vernacular and Kitabis overlapped. And as time changed, this construction, Lidelik, fell out for the new Ashan, Minshan, and types of constructions, right? Lidelik, Sama'il Rabb, Fa'amtana. Right? Fa'amtana. So, and, and therefore, Lord heard and, uh, uh, you know, became, became angry. Fa'amtana. Right? Fa'amtana. Now, what's fascinating here is you can see fa'amtana, the, um, the, uh, the initial vowel that's written with the alif, but you're supposed to pronounce it as a vowel, right? In classical Arabic, it would be imtana. Yeah. Fa'amtana, imtana. There should be no fa'amtana. It should not be a hamza there, right? Uh, you don't find that in classical Arabic, but you do find it in some modern dialects in Jordan today. Cool. Yeah. Right? So it's very interesting. It's not a made-up form. It exists in Jordan. Right? It's, uh, uh, it's pretty clear. It doesn't need a translation, I think. Nope. So there's no Hamza here. Yumin, Mumin. Lam yuminu billah, they still use lam. So they're not using ma yet. Lam ends up disappearing. But in this yeah. period of vernacular, lam is living, it's there. It's just, uh, it's a way of negating the past. Lam yuminu billah, wa la tawakkalu ala khalasu. Wa amar al-sihab min fawq. Look at that sentence, it's fantastic. You have min fawq, which is a perfectly good Levantine construction. Right, these min tahatu min very nice things, and we see them over here already early. And remember, this is a translation of the Bible. Yeah. Right. So this is they are they are still they are uh, the, the person who is writing is um, uh, is writing in a register that's still supposed to have some gravitas, you know. So Amar el Sihab, and look how he spells Sihab. You see it um, on line uh, uh, twenty one. So what? Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can uh, draw yeah. here. Yeah, right? Uh, El, yeah, yeah, yeah. El Sihab. Yeah. Very email, right? Very nice. Min fawq. Wa abwaab al sama fatah. Right? And he opened the uh, uh, the gates of heaven, right? Wa amtar alayhum manna liyakulu. Khubz min al malayka a'atahum. No, khubz min al sama a'atahum. I, say, I, I put in the wrong word here. You see, it's broken, but it tells you, but we can see how many letters are left so we can reconstruct them. Khubz al-malayke, akal, insane, shaba' ba'ath lahum. Insane, you see it right there. Yeah, insane. Even with an with, acute... Uh, yes, a, of course. Let, you know, insane, right? Hey, so hey. It's fascinating because if you look at when, whenever, um, even today, and this, is, this is just shows you, it's, it's completely parallel, but even today, when there are attempts to write uh, uh, the vernacular in, uh, in Latin characters, the long A is written like this, isn't it? Yep. Some, some this, do write them. And this, you have it, yeah. And this writing tradition, completely independently, used the same strategy. Yeah. Right? 12, 12 1300 years earlier. Hmm. Pioneers. So well, basically, they, they're not even pioneers. This is how they, this is how they spoke. 
this is how they spoke and they were looking they were making a writing system to represent the way they speak yes right they were not in any sense trying to um how do you say it uh imitate arabic orthography the way you write arabic right it wasn't like that they were they were trying to because if they wanted to they would just write alif with alif right? they would pick one letter to write the alif but they don't you can see here you have insane written in this way but here you have yeah and you see the ah after the ta right a'ta-hum. and they uh, the 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 uh, acute the accent is there to let you know that it's stressed it's long mm-hmm. insane but the vowels are different even though in arabic script they're both going to be represented with, with the same that, yeah, yeah yeah so I there isn't yeah. mm-hmm. no no tell me, tell me no it just it, it, there isn't there is a uh, there is an attempt here to reproduce pronunciation yeah uh, and now uh, I do have several questions here, but I think the Sihabu Insin, this is just a comment on the side. Uh, yeah. We can maybe discuss this uh, sometime later. The, does this reflect the different Tajweed styles, even in Arabic uh, Fusha? So there is these, uh, uh, in these pronunciations, the Imala exist in um, the corpus of material, the canonical uh, uh, material that, uh, from which linguistic generaliz- generalizations may be made, right? Yeah. So you can have imala. Um, but if you think about it, and you can find this in reading traditions of the Quran and everything, but coming back to um, uh, where we began, which was the popular imagination, immediately if you read Fusha with Sihab, they say that's not Fusha. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not even though, even though it is permissible in certain contexts in Quranic recitation. Uh, this is why maybe it was it was acquired because the dialect of those who were reading or reciting somewhere, some uh, somehow in time, they this is their maybe spoken. Precisely. Yeah. Pre- precisely. Precisely. No, there is that that influence of vernacular. Yes. On recitation. Precisely. Indeed. And so, um, and, and uh, you know, we can, uh, 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 we can uh, uh, finish with just these lines here, just to give yeah, you sure. this is, this is great. a bit, uh, a final bit of, uh, of the language. So this is when, um, so God saves the children of Israel and he gives them food and everything. But of course, uh, they started worshiping idols again, uh, which angered him. And here it, it goes, وَأَبْتَلُوا وَمَرْمَرُوا الْإِلَاهِ الْعَالِي وَشَهَادَاتُهُ لَمْ يَحْفَظُ فَأَنْقَلَبُوا وَغَدَرُوا مِثْلْ آبَائِهُمْ أَنْقَلَبُوا مِثْلِ الْقَوْسِ الْعَوْجِهِ Right? وَأَسْخَطُوهُ بِأَوْثَانِهُمْ وَبِمَنْحُوتَاتِهُمْ أَخَارُوهُ It's quite, it, it has a nice, even though he's sticking close to the Greek, there is a, a style to it. Yep. It has its style. It's literary. It's, it's, it is a stylistic register of the vernacular. A stylistic, a translation register of the vernacular that has its stylistic uh, uh, features, right? And it is, it is elegant in a way. Um, and, and the reason I read this is because here you get to see that perfect balance where you can see you wouldn't expect the language, the vernacular from 1,200 years ago to be identical to the vernacular today. There is no language in the world like that. 
where nothing changed for 1200 years. But you can, so you can see here, indeed, um, there are still many differences. For example, this is the continued use of lam, lam yahfadu, right? That's still there. Uh, you have only one case ending. One case ending in this, in this dialect, we can say. The only time there's a case being used, the only time you have i'rab ending is the jar. And, and only when you have it between pronominal suffixes. So for example, bi'awthanihum wa bi'manhutatihum. Right? So it's there and that's it. And this is what's fascinating here is the same pattern exists in the Phoenician language hmm. where the Phoenician loses all of his arab, okay, except it keeps the jar in front of the suffixes. It's a coincidence probably. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, so it isn't modern completely, but again, it isn't the Fusha we think about either. It's not Fusha. It's, a, it's an ancient vernacular, right? And that's what we get to see uh, uh, with a document like this, right? What the ancient vernacular uh, would have looked like. And uh, this is, so one of the questions would be, well, I mean, languages do develop after all. So uh, mm -hmm. these vernaculars, uh, where do they come from? Where do, where do they originate? Not, not necessarily this one particularly, but I mean, you know, the different Arabic, Semitic, well, Arabic in this case, vernaculars. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, thank you. That's, a, that's, that's very good. So we'll, we'll, we'll come to this, uh, where this particular kind of vernacular comes from, but then we have to, as you, as you suggested, we need to look at it a bit more, more broadly. Uh, so where do the Semitic languages come from? Uh, huge question and completely open to speculation because uh, the Semitic languages, um, the original, let's say the, uh, the way we conceptualize, the way we think about languages and language diversity is sort of similar to um, how we think about biological diversity. Yeah. And so you think of there being a, an original language which diversifies, right? And the reason we think this is because we can observe it happening. We can look in the historical period and see how a language like Latin, vernacular Latin, hmm, diversified over time, into uh, French, into uh, um, Spanish, Romanian, and so on, right? We can look at how, um, and, so, and so an example like that shows us that this is how language, we can observe languages doing this. So it means at the same time that languages have been doing this even before they were written, even before we could have a, here, let me just stop sharing the screen. Yeah. Um, so I can see you better. Uh, how do I do this? Uh, uh, no, stop. There we go. Yes. Ah, perfect. Yeah. Hello again. So, hi. Um, so it stands to reason that languages have been doing this before even, uh, uh, how do you say it, um, be before history, prehistory, right? Before there's a written, written record. Okay. So in that sense, we want to, we would say that we see a bunch of languages. We have, we have Arabic, we've got uh, Hebrew, we've got Aramaic, we have, and these languages are incredibly close to each other, right? They are very, very close. Um, they, uh, and, uh, it's, it's um, uh, and you can deal with languages that are a little bit more further or more distantly related, for example, some of the Ethiopic Semitic languages and Akkadian, but overall this entire complex of languages that we call Semitic, and we must remember Semitic is a convention. It's a conventional term that we use to refer to these languages. You could call them Southwest Asian languages or whatever you want, right? 
Um, but this, it's very clear, no matter what label we use, that the, that the languages about which we're speaking are much more closely related to each other in a way that precludes chance um, than they are to, for example, uh, uh, ancient Egyptian or uh, Latin. Hmm? Yeah. So when we look at that group, the um, hypothesis, which is based on, for example, the model of Latin, is that these languages are similar in this way because they descend from a common source. They have a common origin and that as the speakers of that, of that original language uh, moved apart, migrated, or just for whatever social reasons even stopped interacting with each other as intensively, the, over the millennia, we're talking about millennia, tiny changes that happen to language which you can view happening, the difference between your grandmother's speech and the speech of a, of a child, and, and it's very obvious. Now imagine that on the scale of 3,000 years. Yeah. What you get is a different language. And so those tiny changes that accumulate produce different languages over time, right? And so the question, so, so, and, and you can reverse those changes using um, comparative uh, linguistics, historical linguistic methodology. You can reverse those changes. Um, now, there are some, sometimes we can be pretty sure about those reversals and sometimes they're hypo hypothetical, right? Uh, it depends, it's a case by case thing. So you can reverse those changes, and when you reverse those changes, what we end up doing is reconstructing a an original language, huh? a language that from which all of these others uh, would have descended. Now, that original language, when we speak about all of these Semitic languages, is something we would call Proto-Semitic. And so that Proto there simply means reconstructed source language uh, and then the next word refers to the scope of that reconstruction. Hmm? Okay, so that seems simple enough. Uh, the, the more difficult part is where, who and where did this, was this language spoken? Because we can reconstruct grammar and sounds and stuff, but that does that take, that's a, we're still very far away from a community of people who would have spoken, spoken it, and where in the world did they speak it? Yeah. Right? Where, where, where did they speak? How can we... How can we move around? Yeah. Yeah. How can we know where they spoke it? So there are two main hypotheses that either Proto-Semitic was spoken in uh, the Fertile Crescent somewhere, maybe northern Mesopotamia, who knows, or Ethiopia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the general, again, it's, we're in prehistory. We, we can't know exactly, but there are a lot of reasons to favor the Fertile Crescent solution uh, that have to do with loan words. For example, there is a core vocabulary, there, there are certain vocabulary similarities that all of, almost all the Semitic languages share, and they share it with other languages like Indo-European languages. Now, it's that, that, that means that the original Semitic language, or some very early stage of Semitic, must have been somehow in contact with something like Indo-European, that they were able to trade these words, and, if, and that doesn't seem to be very likely in Ethiopia, much more likely in Anatolia right? And in, uh, in the Fertile Crescent. Uh, also, in the Fertile Crescent, that's the only place we, that's where we have the greatest diversity. And I don't mean number of languages, but I mean um, types of languages. So there are two main branches of Semitic, East Semitic, which is Akkadian and the languages of cuneiform culture um, that you have in Mesopotamia, and then West Semitic. 
And the only and so and that that diversity occurs in uh, the fertile crescents, which would make sense if you had that initial split there, right? If you had that initial butt branching out. Um, if you put it in Ethiopia, I suppose you would have to argue that the split happened uh, in Ethiopia, and then only the East Semitic guys went north. It's, it gets really complicated, right? Or or there are many other scenarios that you would have to uh, uh, that you could come up with. Um, but they all require more and more assumptions. But the problem is, you know, when you're dealing with prehistory, we assume that the fewest, the, 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 few, the fewest assumptions needed is the correct explanation. But that's just, I mean, who said? Maybe the most complicated scenario is what happened. So we can't know, right? We just can't know. Yeah. Turning, uh, I, I favor, uh, I favor uh, northern Mesopotamia, but uh, or, or and and you know the the uh, yeah the northern part of the Fertile Crescent that area, but uh, you know um, I can't prove it, and and no one can prove it. It's not falsifiable, so it's just you know it's a, it's a matter of taste, I guess. Um, now uh, you can come to Arabic. Okay, Arabic is 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 a little bit more interest, a little bit easier to approach in this way because Arabic, um, uh, there are examples of, uh, of Arabic in the written record. So Arabic is an entirely prehistoric. See, the first, if we think about Arabic and the diversity of what we call Arabic, so I want you and the way we all need to think about this is to put our textbook aside, the book that we have from, uh, uh, from school, the Alif Bar in America, they study with Kitafi Ta'alum al-Lughal Arabiyyah, put it in the drawer. It's great, it's good to read newspapers, but let's, we can't, that's not going to factor in right now for our discussion about Arabic. We want to look at the totality of um, languages that are spoken across the, uh, uh, the region today, and we want to look at uh, language of uh, of the Quran, for example, we can look at the language of the poetries, we can look at the psalm fragment that I talked about, and we can ask ourselves in a very, in a very similar way, thinking about this from a biological um, perspective, from, a, from, from the biological model, right? Are there uh, features, are there uh, linguistic features yes, that all of these vernaculars share a common source? the way that we can say that for all the Semitic languages. Now, the document I just read, the Psalm fragment, uh, it's very clearly not Fosha, but it's very clearly Arabic, right? Yeah. So there's that, there's that, there's that uh, very important point, is that it's not Fosha, but it's very clearly Arabic. Now, of course, this complicates things. Uh, we can go back even further in time and look at the pre-Islamic record. There are inscriptions that are from... Uh, our earliest uh, Arabic inscription is, uh, I think we could plausibly date to the, to the Iron Age, okay? Iron Age inscription. Now we would call it Arabic, but it's, we have no idea what the ins person who wrote that inscription would have called their language. Okay. We have no idea what the person who wrote that inscription would have called their alphabet, would have self-identified as. So when we use Arabic here, it is conventional. That's the question I have, yeah. yeah. It's conventional. What we're basically saying is that the linguistic features of this document agree with later forms uh, or agree with later uh, attestations of a language that we call Arabic and that speakers called Arabic. I mean, the Quranic uh, 
the, 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 the uh, Quranic audience clearly called the language that the Quran was being used, uh, the language of the Quran Arabic, right? Uh, the Quran calls itself Arabic, Arabi. We also need to make that distinction between Arabi and Al-Arabiya, right? Which is yeah. uh, important. So anyway, so there is something called Arabi. It has a linguistic profile. It has a linguistic fingerprint. And uh, we, we can see that the features that characterize Arabic and that mark it off, that separate it from other kinds of uh, Semitic languages, uh, indeed pre-existed the seventh century and, 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 and go back quite far in time. Hmm? So uh, we, we, there is a bit of, we can, we, we, have a, we can use this term in a kind of conventional way uh, to talk about these ancient texts, right? Uh, some people have tried to get around this by calling them Arabian, but it's the same. It's the same thing, right? I mean, we're really, we're saying the same thing. Um, and oh, uh, and in this case, it might be uh, a geographical kind of denomination or... A, well, a even name? so, the geographic denomination is based on an ethnonym. Yeah. Right? I mean, so you can even call it geographic, but ultimately the name of this geographic, the name of the, of the, geo of the, of the, um, of the location, of the, the geographic expanse that we're calling Arabia, that, that is coming from an ethnonym, not the other way around. It's, yeah, well, true, true. It's unclear. But the point is, um, with Arabic, we, um, so, so when we look at all of these and we say, okay, there are, there, 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 the, the relationship between all of these vernaculars is best explained as a whole in terms of common descent from a single uh, vernacular, right? Or a single, or, or a group, a cluster of vernaculars. Uh, uh, in the same way, we can ask, okay, where, where was this? Who spoke it? And what have you. Now, um, the traditional way of thinking about this, the way of thinking about this that, uh, uh, how do you say it, um, that you might find in your, uh, uh, as far as I know, and I mean, I'm not, uh, uh, I don't have much experience uh, uh, studying this material in a, uh, you know, as a child, actually, I don't have any experience studying this material, uh, this type of material as a child. But if you open the basic ideas that, well, we're talking again about the origin of Arabic, and we've, we've said that this is how we've defined Arabic. Well, the, the in, in popular imagination, uh, uh, there are many different stories about where Arabic comes from. And they all are, um, you know, they all, they, they all have this kind of mythological grandeur. They are, uh, Arabic comes from very, very far away in the deepest deserts, right? That's where you're going to find it, all the way over there. And it's sort of, it's alienating in a way. People speak it, they're speaking the desert language. Well, maybe, maybe but, uh, but, but, you know, that's, um, that's not a given. We shouldn't just immediately accept that. We should think about it. Or the, uh, there's other, there's um, classical writers wrote a lot about this, where Arabic came from, but of course their goals were different than ours. They weren't discussing Arabic in the way we were discussing it in any way at all. They're not using a uh, historical linguistic methodology at all. Um, they are, I would characterize these writers more as folklorists, right? They're folklorists. Folklorists, yeah. Folklorists, yeah. They're folklorists. And so they are collecting uh, stories about, you know, a, about prehistory and about a mythological past, right? Not a past that people necessarily, not a past anyone living had any recollection of. And so you have, and there are widely different, different accounts. There's no consensus among ancient writers. So I don't know how the, the Yemen, uh, so, so today the most common idea is Arabic comes from Yemen. 
But I don't know how that story, well, we, well actually, there are studies that explain how uh, that narrative became the favored one. But it, in the beginning, it was just one of many narratives. There's another narrative that Arabic comes from Mesopotamia, right? And that it was spoken, it was brought to the Hijaz by giants. Oh. Okay? I, it's very nice. It's great storytelling, right? And that's the point. We, we need to be, be able to appreciate good storytelling. But recognize that it's storytelling, right? So there is no consensus, right? So that the others say that, that, in fact, Arabic came from heaven. It was revelation. The language yeah. was revealed to a prophet, to prophet Hud, right? So, and again, none of these, there's, um, there's no, there, none of these are, uh, how do you say it, um, uh, uh, considered canonical in any sense, you know? None of these stories uh, appeared. And the, the Quran has nothing to say, for example, about where Arabic came from. So it shouldn't really touch anyone's religious sensibilities, right? Um, but uh, the question here now, now we can, we can examine these claims. Um, and I, I think it's sort of funny to examine them because they are stories to begin with, right? So already, when you're already trying to examine a story like this um, historically, uh, you might be, um, you're, I think it's already misguided. But okay, fine. We can examine this. And we can say, okay, well, where did Arabic come from? Well, the prehistoric, go to prehistory, that's again, that's a matter of, uh, a matter of speculation. We're always stuck with speculation of prehistory. But when we look at the historical record, the very earliest uh, record, so we can go down to Yemen, right? Where all of our, um, where we have the great, uh, and Yemen is the third uh, center, really the third center of civilization in uh, the ancient Near East. I mean, Yemen had a fabulous civilization. It was the center of, of, um, of, uh, uh, of, of civilization, certainly in Arabia. Uh, and I mean historical Yemen. Huh? So it's, uh, it's not, not the modern political borders. Don't think of that country as simply Yemen. But, you know, and you had, many, you had, you had four principal kingdoms there. Uh, these, uh, the documentation begins as early as the late second millennium BC. So more than a thousand years or a thousand years before Christ. And what's fascinating now, according to our, now think about this. This is what makes it so fun. According to our, uh, according to the folklore, we would expect, well, if we have a text from 1000 BC from Yemen in Yemen itself, we must, this must be our proto-Arabic. This must be our, the, the Arabic of the Arab, Arabic speakers, right? The, the first yeah. language. Well, the inscriptions were there. Uh, medieval writers were aware of them. And they, they actually knew the alphabet, too. Uh, medieval writers, medieval Arabic writers, historians, uh, Arabic writing, uh, I would say, uh, scholars like Alhamdani, knew the alphabet. They, they, these, are, these inscriptions are not written in the Arabic script. They're written in an indigenous alphabetic tradition that we call the South Semitic alphabet. And they knew it. They knew the alphabet. Huh? They knew it. Uh, but we don't have any real attempts that survive, at least. We don't know, I mean, of, of trying to decipher these inscriptions and translate them in medieval times. Um, the inscriptions were, uh, came to Western, really Western scholarly attention in the 19th century and were deciphered, and, and, and it was, this is what the result was, fantastic. Instead of finding um, the uh, source of Al-Arabiya, of the Fushabir, eh? Yemen actually was home to independent Semitic languages that had gone extinct. Okay. That had gone 
extinct the way Coptic went extinct in, um, in Egypt, that had gone extinct the way, um, uh, well, other languages um, uh, uh, from that, uh, uh, other, other ancient languages disappeared. They had gone extinct. And it was, uh, of course, there was the language of the kingdom of Sabah, Sabaic, right, Sheba. But there were other kingdoms, Ma'in, Hataban, Hadramut. And each one of these kingdoms has its own language. And when you look at the language of Hadramut or Hataban, I mean, these things are, these languages are so far from Arabic, grammatically. Um, but to put it in a different way, Aramaic and Hebrew are closer to Arabic than these languages. So... There's no way on earth. I mean, it's it originated uh, in in Yemen. Or, or well, there's or or you can you can you know you can come you can make the situation more complex and say, well, yes, Arabic did come from there, but it just was never written down. Now, this is what complicates the this is this scenario. So, at the same time that Yemen has these very uh, exotic and lovely languages. In fact, they're, they're, they're quite nice and, and, and everyone should read Sabaic and, and, and because it's just a tremendous uh, corpus and lots of fun to read. Um, but at the same time that these languages are being used and written down and so forth in South Arabia. In North Arabia and in the Southern Levant, so in places like Jordan, the Northern Hejaz, you have inscriptions. And these inscriptions are very much Arabic. So um, both languages are sort of appearing at the same time, roughly speaking, but Arabic is in the north, not the south. Now you could say, no, 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 but you see Arabic originated in the south, but only got written when it went north. Yeah. I could also say Sabaic originated in the north and only got written when it went south. I mean, it's, it's, it's an argument from no evidence. But if we stick to the evidence, the map is upside down. Mm. Okay? The map is upside down, which, well, I would put it another way. This isn't revisionist history. We're not revising history. We are writing history for the first time because history of this sort needs to be based on, doc, on, on, on examinable evidence, yeah. on evidence that you can scrutinize, that you can scrutinize, that you can study and falsify. We can't write history based on folklore. And so, it, so when someone might say, hey, you're, you're revising history, it's like, no, no, no. What you've done is you've taken folklore and you've assumed it's history without any kind of uh, interrogation of that material. And you're basically saying you need to argue, you need to use your evidence to argue against the folklore. Whereas in reality, we begin neutrally. We say, look, we have no history. We have folklore. Folklore is interesting, but we have no history. We have no idea where Arabic comes from. Let's let the document speak. Let's let the archaeology speak and let's see. So that's the scenario we have now. Now, I mean, you know, who knows how things can change. But my point is, is not trying to push forward an argument out of ideological purposes, but rather recognizing that we don't have a history of this language in the ancient, in the ancient times. We just don't. We have a lot of folklore, we have a lot of mythology, which is great, which is wonderful. Everyone should read it and delight in it because it's, it's great to read. It doesn't, the, the fact that it's not um, positive in its history, that it's not documentary, doesn't make it less valuable. I think it's wonderful that a language like Arabic has a, you know, uh, that, that, that the stories that it was spoken by antediluvian giants. I mean, how, how cool is that, Yeah. right? 
I mean, or that, or that it's a, lang- a sacred language of the heavens that comes down and is given to something them. similar to Herodotus. I mean, the oh yes, oh, absolutely, it's wonderful, and it should yeah. be read. And everyone reads it, and everyone just enjoys what he says. Everyone knows that there are so many kind of um, uh, well, folklore myths. Indeed, well. indeed, and that's that's the um, that's the sensitivity we need when treating Arabic. Yeah. So. so example, I'll, I'll tell you something that will, that will amuse you. Um, the uh, studies of modern Arabic dialects or studies of medieval, medieval Arabic dialects, when they look at, for example, uh, uh, dialects like Tayyip, right, the dialect of Tayyip, which was a tribe in northern Arabia, Ta'i dialect, Tayyip was a tribe in northern Arabia. Okay. okay. Important big tribe. It, they, that name, the 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 the, the, the give their name to the generic as it, their name becomes a generic term uh, for Arabs in in Syriac, for example, Ayay, right? Which just means Arabs. So the whole all of the desert dwelling desert dwelling Arabians are called after this tribe. Huh? Now, uh, the 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 folklore that we have says that this tribe is a Yemeni tribe. Okay, it's a Yemeni tribe that after the collapse of the Great Dam of Marib, now you see this is the, the Great Dam of Marib collapses and all the tribes disperse. And this tribe, this dispersal, this um, Arab tribe moves north. Huh? And it's, it's originally from Yemen. And that's why they use the, uh, the relative pronoun, thu. Uh, thu instead of alladi, they use thu. So we'd say something like, arrajul uh, thu. Uh, uh, the we, the who, uh, the, this one. Well, they'll use the in place of al okay. Right? So I might say something, Ar-Rajul Ah, okay. No, that's Now they'll okay. say yeah. that that's, okay, and that's from Yemen. Now, <laughs> what's fascinating, what's fascinating about this, of course, that's good Syriac too, if you just, uh, you know, pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm, 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 and I'm ignorant in absolutely all, all languages, yeah. Well, uh, you, you certainly know your Arabic. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I and I and I know I know you know you're Lebanese, so yeah. <laughs> and uh, but the um, but okay, so you take the du, um, but you know the epigraphic documentation is there, and so we have a history. We have documents that go from Yemen that go back to a thousand years before Christ, and there's no Tayyip anywhere there. Hmm. Whereas we have documents in the north, like the Safiyyah inscription, that mention Tayyip. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the rise of Islam in the in the north. That's the history, right? That's writing history. There we realize, and then we and then we and we see that this entire narrative, right? The collapse of a dam, the dispersal of all the tribes. I mean, this is a this is a kind of creation myth. Yeah. But you know, you think about this Eden, which is which is ancient Yemen. This Eden that was sustained by a great dam, and then the dam collapses. The waters of creation are released, chaos unfolds, and all of the, the, the primordial peoples disperse. It's a beautiful creation myth. It's a creation of a nation, in a sense, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But we're not talking about, you know, that's a different, again, we, we want to move back to timelines. That's a mythological timeline. Yeah. Can't use the collapse of the Madib Dam to explain uh, uh, aspects in Arabic language history. Although people do, uh, they see the, that that what we're dealing with in one way is a literary uh, uh, construction. What we're dealing with is a um, is uh, is 
absolutely beautiful storytelling. Um, and, and, and in fact, almost in a way, uh, I always thought it sort of, it robs these peoples of having an imagination. And so that everything that they said, everything they said is, they have no imagination. It's just, an, it's just a, a depiction of, of what happened. Right? And so all of these things are just believed because these people didn't have imagination. They just described things, right? They never told stories. They never told stories. Um, and it's, 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 well, it's, it's a bit silly, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and so, and so when we deal with the documentary sources that we discover, we, we turn things around, but then we realize that so much of what we're taught, both maybe, maybe in the Middle East, but also uh, in the West, in when, when one decides to study these subjects, is simply the transformation of folklore and storytelling into history because of the lack of there being uh, uh, any, uh, the, the idea that, there's, that there are no other sources, right? Yeah. This, this myth that there are no other sources, yeah. Which is ironic in the West because this wouldn't happen in, you know, any western languages or western historical events yeah, so they would rather think about uh, they would rather look for evidence if we're saying but in this case they just dismiss the fact that there might be evidence or they might have given up on the fact that there might be evidence taken with and they just go with a mythological narrative and it's it's interesting because so much of these so when these subjects are studied uh, no i mean it, it's and and uh i should say that this is not by specialists of course i mean the uh the community of arabic dialectologists that is people who study vernacular arabic are uh, a fantastic group of scholars and, and and of course they are quite they have anyone are quite aware of the difference between the mythological past of arabic and the okay arabic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but when you deal with people who aren't specialized in this they're simply uh narrating they're simply uh, uh, same yeah. idea transmitting narrations but in in a western context very often these narrations are um presented with the force of uh, 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 uh as having uh, the, the force of historical fact yeah and so and so it's it is it is funny so so i mean i have uh, i i have I don't feel like I have necessarily said anything radical in any of the work that I've done by saying that Arabic uh, seems to originate or come from Northern Arabia, the Southern Levant. I have just simply, I'm actually not very creative in this way. I've simply just told you what the map looks like. Yeah. Only reason why it seems in any, it can any way be term, uh, interpreted as radical is because when you compare that epigraphic map with the folklore, it looks the opposite. But a normal person would say, well, that's not really a problem. Yeah. Exactly. This is the thing. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. even if you're going against the uh, mythological between brackets narrative, well, there's no problem there. It's just now we yeah. found new evidence that says, well, it originates somewhere else. And I do, I mean, I do have uh some questions i think i will not ask these now because uh, we might we can talk about them later but something along mm. the lines of uh the nature of language but this is i i don't think it would be as interesting for the podcast now because there are probably uh, better people to ask about the uh, bigger uh, questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no no not that but i mean 
uh, I do know some of the audience is, is interested in, in what we're going to be talking about now, which we haven't mm. touched upon yet. But uh, mm. something to think about maybe yourself uh, for later mm. on, because people like Schelling, Friedrich Schelling, a German philosopher, uh, said something along the lines of language is faded mythology. So mm -hmm. it's not in the sense of, you know, creating a myth about the nature of language, but it's just yeah. how human beings create this language. So picked from, yeah. you know, pictographic kind of uh, uh, drawings on caves and then inscriptions on stones, etc. And then mm. how this mm. translates, the images become more metaphorical and then they become afterwards abstract concepts as the language mm -hmm. we speak now. So this is... This is something on the side, maybe we can touch oh, upon Yeah, but, we can, we can. Yeah, but uh, for now, and uh, maybe this, is, uh, the, this would be the last uh, section of the discussion, mm. something along the lines of Arabic in the Levant, but part, more particularly, well, uh, near uh, uh, Eastern Mediterranean, like places like Lebanon, like what the hell was going on? Uh, throughout the centuries, epics, what did we speak? You know, the entire debate. So what, 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 what are the Lebanese speaking today? Uh, Lebanese? That sense? And how, and, and where did it come from? I mean, I think, uh, I think, yeah, well, that's, that's a very, very nice uh, uh, subject. I think it's, uh, it's, it's uh, there are so many answers to the question, and it just depends on what, uh, uh, what we mean precisely by the question. So if we look at a place, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean, if we look at, uh, we'll focus on Lebanon because I think that's your audience. Uh, uh, so how do we know what people in the past were speaking in Lebanon? Well, the only way that we can know, there, there are two ways, the only way we can ever know what people in the past were speaking is by what they wrote. But we also know that writing is a technology. And, uh, it's a, and because it's a technology, it, it is institutionalized in a way, right? Yeah. So what is, what is written doesn't tell the whole story of what is spoken. The same when we looked at uh, you know, these early Arabic documents and the same when we talked about the grammarians, we get a small snapshot of... Uh, the linguist, linguistic map. So um, we can only know what people were speaking in Lebanon uh, by what they were writing or what was written about them, right? Let's say other people are writing about them and, and, and make mention of words being used there. We can also know a bit from toponyms, from place names. Um, those things, oh. place names are especially tricky because they can remain intact long after um, uh, the language disappeared. And in addition to that, they can have sources that, um, uh, that never reflected the local vernacular, but that reflected political um, uh, episodes in the past that maybe we don't have access to. So for example, we can think of Iskandaria, mm. right? Yeah. This is not a place name that emerges from uh, the local vernacular. And just imagine, I mean, you know, we, we have to play this game. Imagine we don't have... Uh, the historical sources that we do have, and we are faced with trying to explain why there's a city in Egypt called oh, Alexandria. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, 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 well, we would come up with some explanation, I'm sure. But the wrong explanation would be that um, uh, that was a, a uh, the wrong explanation would be seeing Greek as indigenous 
to Egypt um, from its earliest history, right? I mean, there's, there's a historical, uh, 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 there's, a, there's a, a story, a historical story there. So, um, so in Lebanon, that's how we know. And I think we can be relatively sure that uh, people in Lebanon spoke Canaanite languages, right? And Canaanite languages, these are defined. And remember, when we use the term Canaanite, we're using it in this linguistic, in this linguistic sense. They are languages that have this fingerprint of grammatical features, grammatical innovations, grammatical uh, uh, glasses, right? That is a fingerprint that suggests that the language is spoken in Lebanon, the language in, in, the, in the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, the language is spoken um, uh, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean uh, are um, uh, uh, shared a kind of common ancestor, okay? That had a, these languages were also in contact. So, um, so if we look at, for example, the kingdoms of Moab, Edom, uh, Ammon, and Jordan, these they were writing, uh, uh, they were writing in what we would think what we would call Canaanite languages, right? They were writing these. Um, if we look at Judea, if we look at the kingdom of Israel, they are also using a language that we today call Hebrew, right? They call it Judean, Israelite, whatever. But it was, uh, it is a Canaanite language that we would, uh, that is, uh, well, Hebrew. And Phoenician, the language of Lebanon, was in its consonantal garb, okay? That's what we always have to remember, in its consonants, probably mutually intelligible with Hebrew. I mean, very, very close to Hebrew. But remember, it's consonants. So many things can be happening uh, that we can't see in the writing system, right? So it's, it's and, and uh, not to mention things like inflection and intonation. So it's really unclear how mutually intelligible any of these languages were, but they are very close in the way that they're written, their consonants, right? So these are all Canaanite languages. So it's, like, it's likely that a large portion, maybe all of Lebanon spoke um, uh, a Canaanite language, some form of Phoenician, what we call Phoenician, right? But um, that's all we can say. There may have been other kinds of languages spoken in Lebanon we have no access to because they were never written. Right, you, you just got to think, you know, you're in, you're 2000, you're, 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 you're uh, how about you're, you're 1200 BC, and you've got these villages up in the mountains. Um, they're not writing anything. Uh, and if they are going to write, they're going to write the official, they're going to write the, la the scribal language. They're going to commission yeah. the to write scribe. How can we possibly know what they were speaking? Right, we, we, we fill in the gaps, right? We sure. fill in the gaps. We can't possibly know what they were speaking. Um, the same way, for example, today in, in, in Turkey, uh, in the Black Sea, you have pockets still, pockets of Greek being spoken, right? Just forgotten dialects. So it's, this, is, um, this is completely possible. So what Aramaic, pockets of Aramaic might be today in, the, in, 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 in places like Syria, uh, yeah. in Iron Age or Bronze Age Lebanon, there may have been some pre-existing language that we would never have any access to unless there's a chance to discover it. So what we, what we, what we, when we say a certain language was spoken, it does not deny that other, the other that at the same time, um, other languages were not, right? It's not a, uh, a universal thing, right? So, so there's that. And then at some point um, uh, in the first millennium, probably, but maybe in the first millennium BCE, but maybe in the first millennium CE even, Aramaic moves in. Huh? Aramaic moves in and starts being spoken in, in all over the Fertile Crescent. But again, we can't know how, um, uh, how absolute 
the spread of Aramaic was. We can know that Aramaic became a literary register, that people in cities and, you know, this kind of spoke Aramaic. But we go back to, uh, uh, to, our, to our guy in the village in the mountains. Maybe he's still speaking the Bronze Age language. <laughs> Never, I mean, we have no clue. But it's fun to imagine that all these linguistic changes are happening. And it isn't until the 15th century AD that this guy finally learned another language. <laughs> and it's completely possible. Right? Yeah. This, is, this, yeah. is the, this is the thing. This is the funny thing about attestation. So, um, so then you have that. And then, so let's, that brings us, let's say, to the 7th century. Okay? 7th, 8th century. So at this point, you probably, I mean, what we can say is that the Lebanese are uh, speaking uh, forms of Western Aramaic. Uh, maybe there are uh, remnants of Canaanite. Maybe there's Canaanite influence on this Aramaic. We can't know the vernacular, right? People are writing at this period, they're writing Syriac. This is the, this is the Fusha of Aramaic, Syriac. So we can't use Syriac to know what people were speaking in their daily life any more than you can use Fusha to know what people are speaking in their daily life, right? Syriac is Fusha for Aramaic. Um, so, all right. Then... In the 8th century, 7th century, 8th century, Lebanon becomes part of the Umayyad state. And subsequently the Abbasid state. So on and so forth, right? It becomes part of a new global order. You, know, you can think of this as sort of globalization 0.5. A new global order. And in this new global order, there is a new um, international language. It's a language you would use at the marketplace. It's a language you would use for drawing up official documents, da 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 Trade with uh, people to travel when you travel to different places and speak with others. And this language was Arabic. But, crucial. What kind of Arabic that was? It's not Kitabis. Yeah. It's the Arabic that I just read to you. It's this vernacular form of Arabic. And it's this vernacular form of Arabic that spreads. So this is the living Arabic that comes into Lebanon in this period. And, and, and it's at this moment that, let's say, a person living in Beirut, who uh, on Sunday would, uh, do, would worship and have his liturgy in, 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 in classical Syria, uh, who would at the same time uh, be speaking a uh, Western Middle Aramaic or early modern Aramaic dialect. Uh, and that would be the language of his community. Uh, be the language of his community. And then when he goes to the market or when he does his business, he's speaking Arabi. Not Al Arabiya, Arabi. Yeah. And you would probably, at, at normal, under normal conditions, have a uh, kind of, how do you say it, uh, stable multilingualism or stable bilingualism. Why not? And over time, over time, what happens when you have this kind of bilingualism, especially between two languages that are so closely related? Again, forget. Yeah, exactly. Forget the Fusha. Think about how close Arabi is to Aramaic. To Aramaic. To Arabi. They influence Arabi. each other. Yeah, of course. So then they start converging. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, speaking of which, uh, they on, on the tweet that you posted, uh, you reading the, the, yeah. the Arabic uh, text? Yeah. Because, mm. uh, yeah. Uh, Rachel uh, posted a clip from I don't know which part in uh, Iraq, where they have this 
uh, dialect, a uh, vernacular that is clearly a mix between Aramaic or Syriac and mm. uh, Fus and uh, Arabic. Yani, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did not I listen to it. I so didn't see it. I didn't yeah, see it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll check so it maybe out. this is this is kind of uh, the same well, way but for, for Iraq or something. Well, I think you're going to get convergence in this way, but convergence now um, in a vacuum, it would be 50-50 for convergence, but it's not a vacuum. Of course. Because people are speaking, now you've got, you've got, think about the child, the child is bilingual. The child speaks Aramaic, speaks Arabic, but they're not sociolinguistically equal. Mm. Right? And the Arabic is if you consider now this new international context, the Arabic is favored. There's much more um, uh, uh, Arabic is international, it's not local, it's a marker of being from the city, so Arabic would have sound medani, you see. It being, being an Arabic speaker meant you were part of the city, whereas speaking Aramaic or whatever local dialect you were speaking, whatever local language you were speaking, would have been like uh, well, it would have been a marker of a villager, someone from, you know? Yeah. So Arabic is associated with commerce, with empire, with business, Arabi even, huh? Uh, and let's emphasize again, the, yeah. the, the spoken it's, it's Arabi. Yeah, yeah the, it's Arabi. Yeah. yeah, of course. I mean, it's not... Uh, not the Kitabi one, Fusha. No, no, not, not, not Kitabis, right? Not Nahawi. So it's... Um, but this has its prestige, you know, it, it comes of course. with... Okay, and so, um, so what happens? Uh, as they converge, there's just going to be a lot more material coming from the Arabic side of, of, the, of, the, of the spectrum. And in addition to that, you have above all, Kitabis is above everything. And Kitabis is giving words. Hmm. You think about the legal vocabulary. You think about, um, uh, 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 yeah, a, a religion, law, society, all of this is coming from Kitabis. Uh, um, administration, vocabulary for administration, economic, all of that is come, all that vocabulary comes from the imperial register. So you have this huge influence of vocabulary from Kitabis. Um, and then you have uh, uh, the local Arabic, which of course has its own kind of city marker, sounds like a city language. And then, and then you have this convergence. So where would you, where would you, where do you get your Aramaic? Well, a lot of the, Times you just can't see it. You just can't see the Aramaic because it's so close to Arabic. But um, as everyone knows, there are a few examples that, that people like to point out. Uh, one of them, I think, is, uh, is, is very nice, which is the um, which is the uh, pronouns innon, uh, like that, which is a beautiful Aramaic pronoun just brought into Arabic, um, into the local vernacular. Uh, you know, you have constructions like shiftul uh, walad or, you know, Baytul Ahmed, something like that. Now, that construction is, to me, it seems rather obviously, uh, um, uh, the source of it is rather obviously Aramaic, but, uh, that, you know, there's some scholars now who say, no, it's an, it's an Arabic internal thing. But I think when you look at the picture cumulative, cumulatively, it's you're sort of pulling strings. You're, you're, you're grasping for uh, straws or whatever, whatever you're supposed to say. Um, I think it's it's quite obvious that it's 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 Aramaic substrate, it's it's or abstract, right? So over time, this kind of convergence happens, and your final product is a language that is in large part 
and in almost and in almost every in, in most of the ways that you can measure Arabi. But there the Aramaic components tell a crucial story about the history of that Arabi. And that it wasn't either or, that what you have is, I mean, everything is a hybrid, but what, you, what those Aramaic components tell you about is the kind of hybridization that took place here. It wasn't that the Lebanese woke up one day, erased everything from their memories, and, and started uh, 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 pausing and weeping at campsites. Okay, that never happened. Um, it was uh, a very natural um, acquisition of a imperial language. Uh, Organic. Yes, absolutely. And the, uh, the, the, the very nice, um, uh, the, the Kitabis was in the past and is as today as well, very much the, um, the realm of the intellectual. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. And this is, uh, this is, I think, I just want to point this out. This, uh, this is uh, really fascinating. I was having this discussion with an Arabic professor uh, a couple of months ago. And the thing is, with, when it comes to Arabic, so for example, if we're talking maybe fusha or literary language, they use <clears throat> metaphors and idioms and expressions that would not, I would not even be able to identify with how they said, how they expressed something in terms of uh, a horse or a, a name of a horse that is particularly, that particularly comes from one, you know, place. Yeah. Like. So, so this also incorporate, we incorporate elements into, into our uh, vernacular as well, whereby we can express ourselves in a way that we understand and that really reflects us not as an identity. I don't want to talk about, it's not a political identity. It's just that yeah. you live on the Mediterranean, you have different kinds of, you know, a different viewpoint, a different uh, perception, a different yeah. uh, uh, vantage point of things. You perceive things differently. And this translates into the way you express things. And it helps yeah. when it comes to the vernacular. So, so basically, the, even when it comes to literary things, I'm not going to be using things that have been used like 200 years ago somewhere in some poetry that I cannot even relate to because the point of language is for me to understand it right away without even having to translate it. Or it's, this is what I think. So, yeah. No, I mean, I think, and so I think that this is the, this is the, um, this is a very interesting point you make. I mean, all languages, all languages, um, uh, the point of an idiom, let's say, like this, is that it gets fixed and it's not understood literally any longer. Or sometimes it's not even even um, even the uh, uh, the exact meaning of the expression is, un is unclear. It's just the general sense that's communicated. So all languages have these types of things. I remember when I was learning Dutch. Uh, well, maybe no, that's not one. Here's a good one everyone can uh, can, can relate to. Um, kids today, for example, have uh, no clue. Uh, why we would say, um, why we would hang up and hang up the phone. Oh, of course. Right? Yes. There's <laughs> no, no reference. Why that is hang up, right? But nope. it's there and it's stuck and it simply means to close the phone. Yes. Right? Yeah. 
right? Or or when or when you when you when you record someone like right now, I might ask you, are you taping this? Taping this, I, I, yeah, yeah. I and then I correct yeah. this. I'm like, no, no, I'm not taping anymore. I'm recording. Yeah. Precisely, precisely. So so all language and these, I think these idioms are fascinating because they tell you the history of the language. Of course. And and almost some and sometimes independently of the speakers. Yeah. Of the cultural, uh, but all languages. So I think the 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 tricky thing is is that. Uh, there is um, a certain kind of conservatism when it comes to when it comes to to, to Arabic. That there is this there's this there's this need to, to to keep it frozen exactly as it was. And the fact is, you can't do that. You can't do that. It's not so. Let's let's in my view, uh, the uh, kitabis that is used today is. Um, in many ways, the product of you know the Nahda, 19th century, and uh, a movement to modernize Arabic, right? And modernizing Arabic, instead of using modern Arabic, they chose to use classical Arabic, sort of, <laughs> to modernize it. Now, what's fascinating about this is that, um, well, uh, do you know the story of Jurassic Park? Yeah. Now, you can't bring a dinosaur back to life. Yeah. I mean, you can try to revive it and you can substitute some genes here and there, but it's not the exact same thing. It's not the exact same creature. You, you did not revive a dinosaur. You created something new. Yeah. And in a way, by, uh, in a way that's sort of what's happened with modern standard Arabic. It is this, um, and, and you, can, you could say the same with, for example, people, walking, people are still using Latin as a vernacular and stuff. These are not, um, because the normal mode of linguistic transmission has been interrupted. They are not transmitted from mother and father to child within a community. That is, that is the normal way of language, the way you would transmit a language, but, but it's, uh, you can transmit languages in other ways, of course, too. But, you know, and, and the natural circumstances, that's what we would call a mother tongue. That's been interrupted. And, and so you get something completely new. And that's why, for example, I think a lot of people who are even quite good at uh, modern, I have, a, I have a colleague, a good friend, in fact, who is a, uh, who's quite, I mean, I would say he's uh, as close to a native speaker as you can get. But when this person opens up a uh, you know, early Umayyad poetry or pre-Islamic poetry, he has no idea what's going on. He has to read the commentaries, right? Because, because there, it is not the same, it's not only not the same language, but it's also not the same cultural context. Everything has changed, right? Exactly, yeah. And so, um, and so, in reviving it that way, so we, we so, so the, 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 this, this process has led to the creation of something new, right? Something completely new. It's wrong to think of modern standard Arabic as what always was, right? If only in the, only in the most general terms that's the case. But it is something new, and it is, and it has to be. It's a living language now, and it's something new. And so now I think um, there is this, there's, there's you know, people are at a crossroads. People who are interested in the subject are at a crossroads because they're saying, well, so we have this new language that right now it's firmly established. It's been used for more than a century. People, I mean, there are really uh, more than 100 million, 200 million. I don't know how many people who are competent in it. Huh? Uh, but as you point out, one thing that you hear over and over again is that it doesn't feel like it's mine. Right. I mean, I can't think in it. I can't express myself in it. I can't. So is that a, so what do you do? Do you start, do you take the route Germany 
did with Hochdeutsch and make everyone sort of a, a speaker of this, you know, this, 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 this uh, uh, national uh, language that is different than the local vernaculars, but every, but, but, you know, in Germany, I think people speak it natively. I mean, they feel in it, they can write in it, they have, they're emotional with it. Do we, do, do, do people who use, do speakers of vernacular Arabic across the Arab world, do they want to go that route? And it's different for different places. I mean, there's, there's different countries, of course, it's not one thing. They want to go that route with, with modern standard Arabic, or do they want it to go the route of, um, uh, Maltese, which is to say, look, we're an independent country, we and we can have our own language and we have our own vernacular, and we can make it into a literary language. We can standardize it. Every every country needs it needs to be standardized. You can't have every um, every dialect being written is that won't work for uh, legal purposes. Um, so you need some standardization. Do you go in that way and saying that this is the way to go because this is the language? You know, this is just well, it's modernization. You know, and uh, for example. Uh, one of the things that's quite interesting with the revival of Hebrew is that Hebrew wasn't, it wasn't the, um, the oldest stages of Hebrew that were the target for revival. It was the latest stage of the language. Hmm. Sort of pick off where you left off. Yeah. Right? Natural development. So the idea, I suppose, here, in a sense, could be something like, um, you know, uh, do, do, we, do we then move towards um, uh, a, a writing in a language that is uh, just basically more intuitive that we learn at home and that we speak with, right? Um, it's possible. But then again, um, you know, there's no, there's no uh, correct or incorrect choice here. It is really just it's a all political kind of, yeah. It's a it, choice. It, 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 is ultimately, it is ultimately political uh, in, in some way. Uh, and it's also um, each side has its own advantages and disadvantages. I mean, if you, if you really grow up with Fusha and you learn it well, I mean, you have access to a fantastic library. And even if you can't relate, even if, even if, even if um, wandering a desert, uh, pondering fate isn't, really what you do in your day-to-day -day life <laughs> I think anyone can appreciate yeah there's, an, there's a beauty to it um so so you may not have to live it day to day but there is a beauty to that kind of imagery of course uh, and so and so but at the same time how frustrating is it not to be able to put your thoughts literally down on paper to put your feelings without translation yeah literally um, right, so there's that other side of things, and you know, I, I'm I I don't know very much about anything uh, concerning these subjects. These are just uh, just you know natural thoughts about it. But I will say, um, but that the um, that at the point, for example, that a a, a group of people decide, a, a nation or a community decide that the language they speak is well, that they're going to make it into a literary language and they want to you know make it official and there, there, there is that. That is a, a choice that that community can make, and that there's there, you can't at that moment. It isn't for outsiders then to say no. That's not a language, or no, that, that. No, I mean it's a. It is a. It is a. It is a choice, and so you'll you'll get this a lot. For example, with Maltese, so speakers of uh, of, of Arabic might say Maltese is, is just a form of Arabic, uh, which is um, today it's an independent language. It has an academy, it is recognized, it is a, has its own script, its orthography, its, its own stylistics. It's an independent literary language, official language, it's Maltese. Historically, yeah. historically, 
Arabic played a huge role, and Arabic is in, in the way at the center of the development of Maltese, right? The, it contributes most of its uh, grammar, uh, most of its core vocabulary, but then you don't have Maltese without Sicilian. That simple. So, so it, you know, there's, there's a, the story is complicated, but, not, but that historical story, I think the historical side has nothing to do or, or shouldn't play a role in what we call the language today. We call the language what its speakers want it to be called. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, that's, and it, it is tricky. So there's a Wikipedia Masri. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very and fascinating as well. And it is, in both it is. Arabic and Latin scripts. Oh, there's one in Latin script as well. Yes, I'll send you the link. <laughs> oh, fascinating! I only knew the Arabic one, which I thought yeah, was, yeah. which I thought was great. I mean, it's 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 wonderful because you can see. I mean, you know how easy it is to then just write Masri in, uh, in 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 Arabic, and it and it just goes right. And uh, just uh, the, on the side, this has nothing to do with the identity, with whatever people identify yeah. with, or yeah. uh, this, has, this is only strictly limited to, that, to whether or not people want to write in the language that they speak. That's it. Yes, precisely, precisely. And it doesn't mean, I mean, there is this, there is this great fear that when you start writing in the language you speak, all of the heritage will be lost. Yeah. Which is, um, but it's, it's funny because then you can catch the contradictions and you can, uh, you can have a nice discussion about this. So let's say, all right, so you want to write the way you speak. Well, what about, what about the Turaf, huh? You're going to lose all the Turaf. But then, you know, if you try to read the Turaf, they say, you can't understand it. You need to use the Shara. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right? So, so you already, so, so Shakespeare, I mean. Yes, exactly. So it's not, it's not that you, it's not that you actually, you, you, we all recognize that just knowing that language by itself isn't enough. Although it helps, I said earlier, it gives you access. It does give you access. Absolutely. But it isn't that you just start, you don't pick up Risalat uh, al-Ghafran uh, and start reading it the way you, you, you pick up Harry Potter. I mean, it's just, it's not, even if you know Fusha, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. You need to go and you need to make sure you have 10 dictionaries with you. You need to have a sharah, you need to sit there and you need to spend quite a bit of time dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, and that's nice. That's beautiful. That's of course. Nice, that's the kind of thing that gets you off. That's a nice thing to do. But um, it undermines this argument that um, if, you, uh, if you start writing the way you speak, you lose access to this historical material because at the same time, you could imagine this. And this is what happens in modern Greece. How about we translate the classics? Now it sounds incredibly strange. How can you do that? How can you translate? Um, uh, how can you translate something like? Uh, in our case, uh, let's say Gibran, Khalil Gibran. Uh, I mean, uh, and something that was yes. written in the 1900s. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can translate that into vernacular quite easily. Of course. And it would, in many ways, uh, well, it just depends on the audience. Some people will say, no, this feels more like Fusha to me. Some people will say, no, it feels, you know, this feels, I want to feel it in a different way. But so, but, but it's the idea that you don't ever lose anything if you're willing to make the effort to keep it. Yeah. See, that's the, that's the issue. Um, I think with the current system, the idea that all these people are going out and learning uh, kitabis in school, it doesn't make, give them any, doesn't necessarily give them access to what, we're, to what people want to prevent from being lost. Right? It isn't that because somebody takes a, 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 a high school education in Arabic and they learn uh, Nahawi in the classroom, 
that now the Quran will not be lost. Of course not, right? I mean, that's not these. No one would tell this person to go open the to go open the text of the Quran, start reading, and telling us what it means. No, they would always say you have to go to the tafsir. You don't understand it. You don't understand it. So, what difference does it make in that sense, right? Or give them poetry, or give them whatever you want, yeah. right? So there is there is that um, so that, there is that issue, at, uh, 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 and and I think at the same time, I mean, you know, uh, it's. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard decision. Well, it's not a decision anyone has to make, I guess. These it's just that organically. Yeah, these things just happen. But it's an interesting one to kind of contemplate and wonder what things would be like. You know, could one, and I don't know if anyone's actually done this, but it would be a nice experiment. And I don't believe that, we need to, that one needs to write vernacular in the, in the Latin uh, script. You can use the Arabic script, which in itself is just simply the, uh, a, later, a later phase of the cursive uh, Nabataean script, which is itself just kind of a cursive imperial Aramaic script. Yeah. So it's not even, I mean, you know, the, 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 we, can, we can call it whatever we like. But the point is, you can use that script if you modify the orthography. You modify the orthography properly, you can use it to represent everything in Arabic. Hey, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Nasri Khattar project to write the, I think you are, the, to write the, in a uh, separate, like uh, standardize the alphabets and uh, without uh, connecting them. Connecting them? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think, I, yeah, I, I am. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. I think you can yeah. connect fine, but uh, um, but I, I, I know, yeah, there's some people trying to come up with different, the, the connection, the connecting isn't necessarily the problem. Okay. Uh, problem is the, um, so for example, one thing you can hear all the time is that uh, the vernaculars have five vowels Arabic has three. True. Okay, so create two more shapes for the other vowels. Hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not very difficult. These are things, if you wanted to keep the script, you can, make, you can modify any script to, to represent any language. The problem is right now, if you're writing, um, uh, how do you say it? If you're writing in vernacular and you want to represent the A vowel, you have to choose between Fatha or, or, or Kasr, right? Uh, or E. So you don't, but then you could easily just cobble the new vowel, or you could take the Syriac vowel, right? The small uh, epsilon and put it there, or whatever you like. The point is, any script can be modified to, to express the language adequately. So you don't need to necessarily change the script, but you could if you wanted to, right? Yeah. yeah. But it would be interesting whether you use the same script or whether you use the others. And of course, should add here that a script does not have to, uh, how do you say it? Um, represent the phonetics of a language perfectly, right? Native speakers can get through that quite easily. But that said, it would be an interesting thing for someone to do. This would take someone who has a good style in the vernacular and a good way of, because this is the literary style in the vernacular. This would be someone, this would be for someone who composes vernacular poetry, for example, like a Zajali. Like, uh, like Hassan Andil. Yes. Okay, fantastic, right? So good sense of aesthetic with the vernacular. And uh, Elias, I, I, Elias uh, 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 Boisa, I, I spoke mm. to him. Yeah, uh, he's, he's also on Twitter, but yes. So they, they perform Zajal, they do that. Uh, fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm a huge uh, fan of, of that form of art. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's truly, um, you know, it's at the same level as any other Arabic poetic tradition. And it, and it should be recognized as such, right? I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It's, it's, the metaphors are incredible. And it is irtijali, uh, uh, the, uh, the kind of... A, yes. I, I mentioned as well, uh, <laughs> it makes you really uh, um, uh, listen in awe. But someone with that kind of sense, right? 
can you translate something from Torah into dialect? Something that's widely appreciated as, as heritage literature, that is, can, can it be translated into vernacular? Because they are different languages, of course, but, and, it, and I, don't, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know this, but it would be interesting to know if that has ever been attempted or if someone should attempt it or, or, or whether someone would be interested in attempting it, you know, taking something that's so loved and, and, and that people really like um, from what is called Torah literature, uh, and translating it into vernacular. Uh, the attempts that he's been do that he or the what he has been doing now was translating uh, the Little Prince, the, ah. the Lebanese. But uh, I'm mm. not sure about something from the Turat. I'll see. That would be that would be an interesting experiment, right? Because yeah. from 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 Fusha, from yes. From Arabiya to Arabi, or going from Fusha to Masri, or something like this, yes. right? Like, yes. get, get, like, like seeing how that would work. Okay. And because there's so many opportunities for creativity in that, uh, in, that, in that kind of environment. So it would be an interesting experiment. I wouldn't know what to translate. In fact, there's so many different choices, uh, so many yeah. different things to think about. Depends on what you like. You know, I'm a man from the desert, as you see behind me. So I would say, <laughs> oh, I'm translating Labid. Yeah. And so that's the, uh, that's the idea. But, um, but you know, it's, uh, yeah, it could be, could be interesting. Yeah, the little prince using the uh, what alphabet? Uh, both. Oh, both. Alphabet. And uh, the book is done. I mean, I don't know when he's oh, okay. publishing it. I can I can let him uh, email you a copy oh, for you to just uh, look at how, yeah. how 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 it's been. And they're translating Nassim's book as well. Yes. Uh, the yes. Bed of Procrustes. Right. Right. Yes. Right. That's going to be fascinating too because that's yeah. uh, well. I mean, Nassim's writing is just absolutely beautiful. So and it's very nice to read. So I yeah. think. Interesting to see going. But then, from as you said, the, the, the from Fusha, that that would be even more interesting. There, there, there it, it would it would be it would have more of a uh, maybe maybe it would be symbolic in a kind of way too, right? Because translating from Ajami uh, to Arabi is one thing, but <laughs> but going from Fusha right to Arabi would be yeah. a, a quite a quite a different kind of uh, experiment. Well, anyway. Let's see how that goes. But yes, yeah. uh, so uh, thank you very, very much. Hey, thank you. Uh, I think we've always fun to talk to you. Two hours uh, limit here. I don't know if you have an. Uh, did we, did we exceed yes. it? Did we exceeded two hours? Yes. Oh, geez. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> was, I, hope you, I hope it wasn't too boring for you. Uh, oh, I did fascinating stuff. This, I mean, seriously, I, uh, I just uh, hope that uh, you also uh, enjoyed the discussion. Oh, abs absolutely. absolutely. I'm really, really thankful that you accepted the invitation. And, well, it was uh, a pleasure, of course. And, uh, yeah, 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 sure, definitely. All right. Uh, and uh, congratulations ah. on the publication of your book. I'll give you the uh, link for the book. You can put it in the... Uh, uh, yes, sure, definitely. Uh, let me just uh, stop recording here. Uh, yeah.